0: Hey there, Japanese garden enthusiasts, and welcome to the official podcast of the North American Japanese Garden Association. NAJGA is the number one resource for all things Japanese garden related in the English language. Join us as we have conversations with experts and enthusiasts alike about the art, craft, and heart of Japanese garden design. Our episodes are unscripted and casual as well as easy to listen to whether you're up in a tree pruning or working along a garden path. So just pop in your headphones and enjoy these conversations with us. Dana here with the Najka podcast. This month, we're talking about pines in Japanese gardens. So I have Tim Gruner with me today. Would you mind kind of just giving us a little bit of a background on your relationship with pine pruning and Japanese gardens in general before we get started?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. So really, the, the real story goes back to my childhood my love of nature and then my exposure to old growth forest as an early 20s sort of wanderer, and I discovered how great nature made me feel, and I felt a, a kind of clarity that I'd never felt before in the old growth as a young adult. That led me to horticulture, and I accidentally found Anderson Japanese Gardens on a class trip, and it was, for for whatever reason, the, the way the garden was put together at that point in my life, 25 years old, I had the same kind of feeling that I had in the, in the old growth forest of Smoky Mountain National Park. And I became intrigued by Japanese gardens. And so one thing leads to an act, to the next, and I find myself working here uh, starting in 1989 and I've been here ever since. And so uh, that's kind of uh, that's, that's why I'm here.
0: Cool. I know Anderson is pretty famous as far as being a great example of a Japanese garden outside of Japan, and I can see that the pines there have been taken care of very lovingly and carefully to kind of create a certain effect. <clears throat> but for our listeners who may not really know the difference between a bonsai or a niwaki, like a, a pine that you would see in a Japanese garden versus something you're kind of manipulating in a, a potted situation. Can you kind of just talk about the differences for everybody?
1: Sure. I suppose... The principles of styling are similar and really the basic idea is to create an emotional impact in a viewer. When they view the garden, it makes them feel something, a kind of connection, a kind of harmony with the space around them, maybe a sensation of respect, you know, trending towards a kind of insight into nature. So I think that Really the purpose of bonsai and Niwaki is really uh, quite similar. Of course, the scale is very different. I mean, we have trees, pines in particular here that are, you know, they're probably 20 feet tall or maybe a little bit more, certainly a radically different scale than a bonsai. And then of course a bonsai, you know, you pull it out of the pot periodically and also prune the roots. Obviously we don't do that in the garden to Niwaki or garden trees, but we, we certainly prune everything above the ground and we control just like in bonsai, we control scale and line and density and space. So I suppose something along those lines.
0: Mm -hmm. Would you say there's any difference between the shapes that you're trying to create between like bonsai or a garden tree or Niwaki?
1: Sure. I suppose there are styles that transfer clearly from one to the next. But in the case of like a really heavily windswept or or a tree that's clinging to the side of a cliff that you can really pull off readily in bonsai, essentially the space in a garden like this really isn't that. It's not like a tree that's been pounded by wind and blasted by lightning and extremely meager resources these trees are more like a forest that is not pounded extremely hard by the environment that is maybe an easier place to to survive and so accordingly the aesthetic is more along those lines they don't have to be tortured and twisted Um, certainly we want them to be expressive and have a, a kind of character but it's probably a, like a gentler environment that these trees uh, are a part of.
0: Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that's interesting because it kind of leads me to thoughts about when someone comes into the garden, how, what are you trying to get them to focus on as far as that pine or maybe pine placement within the garden in mm-hmm. order to direct their focus a certain direction or how they are utilized within Greater garden design.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to see only pines as an element. So, in, in effect, the pines are, are part of a cohesive whole, and the pines play an important structural role in the garden. But I think it could be argued they are no more important than all the intent, the attendant deciduous trees, and the and the rocks, and the the shapes of the paths, and all those things um, are a part of the of the cohesive whole. Um, and so pines function as a part of of all of that. But like s- sort of specifically uh, on pines, what I guess maybe we hope to yield from placement and how the tree leans, where the lean gestures towards the branches and how they may gesture along a direction that is cohesive with the other plants, cohesive with the rock placement. And then of course, uh, the open space between the branches and the pines, between the pines and the trees around them. Hoichi would off has said it's not about the stuff it's about the space and so the pines are one of those components that create space and it's the empty space that's so important but more specifically about how the trees are maybe conceived in the first place and how they're placed in the landscape there's a fundamental building block of space the scaling triangle or the asymmetrical triangle so if you look out there you'll see that things aren't in straight lines that Generally, they're in groupings that are asymmetrical and uh, around paths and near water, as per patterns in nature, a path functions sort of like a, a stream. And so the trees lean in towards the stream a little bit. Why? Because there's light over the stream and things grow to where the light is, not to where the light isn't. And typically along a stream or on a slope, there's pressure for for light from above because those trees up there are getting the light. And so the plants you might call the subordinate plants down closer to the water are reaching out for the light. And that just happens to be because there's light over the water and it's the same way in a path. So if you want to create a feeling of nature along a path, plant it like things would grow in nature. And so you'll see in this garden, the plants lean in towards Towards the paths, and often along streams, not only leaning in towards the stream, but downstream with the flow a little bit, to create that visual movement. So there's actual movement along a stream of the water, but then there's a, an implied movement by the leaning of the tree, or it could be a pine, and then key branches on that pine also gesturing in the direction of flow. So. You know, if people were to ask me, like, how do you know how to prune a tree? And really, my first answer is the pine needs to be planted correctly in the first place so that it leans in the right direction, has a strong branch reaching out in the right direction, downstream with the flow towards the water. And so that's important.
0: You know, it's interesting you were talking about space, because I think Mm -hmm. that's something that in the West... It's not as maybe celebrated or emphasized in our design, Mm. and it is obviously in this sort of living art that Japanese gardeners are doing. And I remember I didn't know what it was that I thought was so beautiful about pine trees in Japanese gardens, except that they looked ancient. I loved the irregular shape, but I realized after spending time in the garden that it was the space, I think between each pad and how much I could see the trunk all the way from basically the bottom to the top. Mm -hmm. And that was hidden in natural uncurated pine trees. And it was so beautiful. So I think it's interesting when you're pruning a pine, you're trying to show things that sometimes you you wouldn't be able to see in nature, but you still want it to feel natural. How do you ride that balance where you're creating all this space, you're showing the trunk, you're trying to, at the same time, make sure that it follows what it would normally look like with the lighting of that area, or you're trying to get a certain movement, but you are manipulating it at the same time as a human. So how do you balance it looking too artificial or too curated and looking natural as a gardener?
1: Yeah, I suppose success is you couldn't even tell that a gardener ever touched it and certainly inspiration for trees comes from really mature trees in nature the branches the way the weight of the long lower branches tend to cause the branches to sag and as you go up the tree the branches go from below horizontal up towards the top more closer to horizontal and then more upright in the top And so what motivates an action, whether it's removing a branch or leaving a branch or thinning or leaving denser or whatnot, I'm going to go back to a really basic form and that's the way trees grow on steep slopes. And on a steep slope, as the seedling emerges from the ground, they tend to grow more perpendicular to the slope, but then they get their bearings and they straighten out. And so on a steep slope, you'll often have a curve in the bottom of the trunk that is trending downhill. And so when we plant things here, we utilize that little curve at the bottom. We don't want straight trees out of the nursery, almost, almost across the board. Um, so, you know, planting the tree with that slight curve in the base, trending towards the path or the stream or the edge of water is a great first step. And then some of the basic rules are if the trunk has movement back and forth, we want branches on the outside of curves. We tend to keep branches on the outside of curves and we tend to remove branches on the inside of curves. Those are general rules, but every pine, depending on its location and situation, it's in a garden like this that's viewed often, a tree has to be viewed anywhere from 180 degree field of view to 270 and some trees are viewed in 360 then you have to sort of gauge how you approach the tree accordingly and and so study the space the way it relates to the space around it how much of the trunk exposed in a location is a consideration and then the space removing the branches What do you see if you remove the branch? What's behind it? Are you enhancing the view by taking the branch out? Are there other elements behind the tree that now come into focus more and you create greater depth by removing branches or thinning branches? So there's really a lot of consideration. And then one of the really key critical things is the scale of the tree. In terms of scale, how does it relate to the architecture? And it has to feel good to people. It has to be on a scale that people are comfortable with so that it's not just intimidating big trees, but something that feels like it's a part of us. And so all those kinds of things are key to what to do about pruning a pine.
0: Awesome. Well, that definitely sounds like a lot to think about when you're pruning and you're you know, trying to think of all these things, like I was saying, like, okay, well, how do you balance that? It shouldn't look like someone touched it at all. But you've got to think about all of these things when you are pruning it. So that's why it takes so long to learn. I'm curious, have you ever made like a huge mistake on a tree that either you learned from or you just can't forget that caused like an issue with a pine tree?
1: Well, in reality, I think if you're not making mistakes, you're not, you're not stretching out. And, you know, in a certain kind of way, you have to try things. And I would say in general, we don't make rash decisions here. We're around these trees every day almost. And so sometimes you may have a feeling about a branch that, May need to come out, or sometimes even a whole, an entire tree, but it's long and careful consideration. And so, you know, long term visions of scale are, are really important. And then, you know, each individual tree, in effect, that the trees need to function as individuals, but part of a cohesive whole. And so, how do your decisions on one tree? affect things around that tree. And then of course that, you you know, you're, you're really not pruning one tree. You're pruning us an entire space. I would say that, probably at this stage of my career, I am generally satisfied. Um, sometimes things maybe aren't as good as I had hoped, but sometimes you don't really know until you actually do it. And so, yeah, I think there are testaments to my inexperience and overzealous pruning behavior that are out there in the garden that will never go away. And so I guess those are sort of my teachers too, to be careful in my decision-making. I try to do what's right and best for the tree and for the space in the long run, but yeah, yeah, there's mistakes out there.
0: Well, um, yeah, that leads us to a little bit of the technical I know that you can't show us, so we'll talk mainly more about a theory, but what would you say are the most unique things that someone would want to know about if they were going to learn to prune pines in the New style, or mm-hmm. even if they're just interested in pruning pines, what are the most unique things that they may need to know about pruning pines?
1: Yep. So hopefully it's planted correctly in the first place so that when you can't do prune it, it you enunciate positive things, trunk curvature, strong branches going in the right direction. And then determining what the ideal scale is for not only an individual plant, but all the plants around it so that you have like a dynamic topo- topography of the tree tops and how that flows and feels when you view it like a natural forest might. And transparency. What do you want to? See? What do you want to hide in the background? What do you want to enunciate in the background? You know, sometimes taking a few branches out ends up yielding a space that has extraordinary depth and complexity. That's like way beyond what just a more full solid tree. That in effect is kind of two dimensional, and that it can be very flat and featureless. But Take a few branches out, see through at the trees behind it, maybe at a fence or a bit of architecture, and suddenly it becomes an exciting space with great depth. So I think, you know, aesthetically, those are those are some of the keys. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So I know there are a couple things that you guys do that are also pretty unique as far as like actual actions you take. Maybe candling, I'm mm-hmm. thinking would be one, or some things you guys do with cleaning the bark itself. I, I'm not an expert. So, you know, I, I'm just thinking of some things that were like kind of surprising to me. Sure. The first time I started to learn about everything it took to maintain and curate the pine trees, what would you say are some unique things there that people maybe don't even know that that is going into it to create the overall effect?
1: Yeah, so I would say that like candling is something that people are intrigued by and candling is essentially removal of all or part of the buds from the current season's growth and that candling would occur from the time of bud break through the hardening of the bud and the expansion of the needles and to the point where they are done growing for the year. And that's how the pines in this region behave. And in general, that's how pines behave across the planet. But a healthy pine in this climate has uh, typically three new buds and typically take out the center bud, the strongest one, and then cut the other two buds back by either pinching them off when they're tender or cutting them with pruning scissors when they starting to harden off a little bit, but cutting them to unequal lengths. And then that enhances dense branching structure and tighter, tighter growth so that you can have a series of mature looking trees in a small space. I mean, I'm, I'm looking outside at pines that are probably between 50 and 60 years old, and they're only 15 feet tall. And in nature around here, they would be easily 60 feet tall, 40 to 60, something like that. So it's really time consuming, but the the net can be a really interesting tree. Um, cleaning the bark. So some, a couple of these things are pushed for time. We don't do them. On a few key trees, yeah, we do it because we want a few keys to really shine. But the bark on Scott's Pine and undoubtedly uh, many other pines across the planet, they can become a little shaggy and bits are peeling off and just rubbing the bark with your hands and cleaning off all that sort of a scaly, shaggy, excessive bark creates cleaner lines. And often on Scots pine, for example, you end up with that really vivid orange bark exposed. And then also sometimes We also like needle prune by thinning the needles off the bottom of the branches to enunciate the lines on the bottom of the branch. It really makes a a beautiful effect. We don't do a whole lot of it because of the demands on our time. But that's another thing I think that people find interesting and also create a great effect on a well manicured pine.
0: For sure. And those are really unique and so specific to trying to enhance the effect you're trying to create with a Niwaki, you know, mm-hmm. versus something else. But yeah, it's interesting. Do you feel then that there's somewhere you have found that you've had to be flexible and create something like either using the same textures or shapes, but it's not exactly what they would have just traditionally used in Japan in order to create a similar effect where you are? Or have you been able to just not have to transform anything to suit the American materials or climate or anything to reach the same effect.
1: If I'm hearing you, we have a handful of pines that will work here. And the Scots pine is the one that is the most suitable structurally with short needles and nice, interesting bark. But that said, it's the most disease and insect prone pine that we really have in this area. And so it has its challenges, but We can't grow black pine. We can't grow coast pine. There's a lot of things that it's just, it's too rough here. Uh, I mean, we had minus 31 four years ago, 31 Fahrenheit. And so it gets pretty rough here. So in general, across the board, we utilize what works, just like in Phoenix, you know, just like in Kyoto, just like in Rockford, Illinois. We use what works, you know, that expands out to deciduous material as well. Some Japanese maples are just not quite hardy here, but thankfully there are a number of new hybrids coming on board that are crosses between the Korean maple, which is super hardy, and the Japanese maple. So there's uh, Japanese maple-looking plants now that are really hardy. They can survive in Minnesota, and that's that's a level of climate even more extreme than what we have here. So in general I think wherever you are the, the principles of design are are again in relative terms they're universal and so you use what works to create the feeling and so I mean that's really what it's about you know it's I think you can say what you will about all kinds of aspects of Japanese gardens but if they can make people feel a kind of connection with the natural world that can lull them away from the craziness of the modern world, just like they did in 16th century Kyoto, and find in people's minds a space for contemplation or a feeling of receptivity and maybe moments of inspiration, then that's what a garden, Japanese garden, like think to me really is. It's not specifically any one element or that comes from Japan. It's really the cohesive effect that they can create in people that spend time in them.
0: For sure. And so I think a lot of times for public gardens or gardens that are having lots of visitors, we're trying to help people have that experience in the garden. I know that the garden of course, can lead people along its paths. It should be able to lead you without um, maybe even needing explanation. But we aren't used to spaces that are created to do that for us. And so I think one difficulty that it's easy to overcome, honestly, with just a little bit of preparation or explanation, but a lot of times people in the West will rush through a garden or miss the aspects that do help them connect and rest and even be inspired. And they may be looking for something that it's not. And so therefore they end up missing what it's presenting to them. So like, what do you think as far as helping people enjoy a Japanese garden? If someone didn't know anything and went to one and said, I just don't get it. (laughs) You know, I went through and I'm I'm not really sure what that was about. I didn't really Mm -hmm. enjoy it. What would you tell them? to help them connect with and see what it's trying to do for them.
1: Well, I suppose, of course, there's such a wide array of people. And some people come into this garden and are like immediately connected, like intuitively get it. And they're dialed in and it makes them feel great. And then there's probably a bunch of people that with just a slight nudge, they can jump into that world of contemplative, movement through space. And and then there's some people that are hard to reach for whatever reason. But I guess really, in a way, if the garden isn't working for people, then I have to question my own effort and the effort of what we do. Because I I think in general, gardens speak for themselves. And I will say that sometimes, again, there are people that if you just help them see a little bit that they suddenly become aware, but in general, I think the garden has to speak for itself. And and if it's not, then it's my role as a garden curator to reevaluate what I and we are doing. And so, I mean, I'm totally blessed to work in this garden designed by Hoichi Kurisu and totally a, student of Hoichi's philosophy, I believe in it. And so I I think in general, if someone were having a problem connecting, I would probably ask them to just turn off their phone, stop taking pictures and wander through the garden and just be a silent observer. And then let me know how it worked
0: yeah you should be able to connect with it and maybe what is getting in the way is just not paying attention because you really won't be able to enjoy anything that you're being distracted from if you're being distracted by a phone no matter how good the garden was you wouldn't really be able to connect with it but yeah i think the last question i would have i know there's different shapes i've heard i might be wrong but do you have a certain one that's your favorite kind of the shape for pine tree
1: well, I suppose, of course, I have a few that I think really speak to me because of where they sit in, in space and how they relate to the elements around them. So I think in general, any plant that sits in a spot and it occupies it with a kind of harmony and dignity, a presence of almost any style is, is worthy of admiration and appreciation. I suppose I love the effect of multiple individual trunks functioning like a forest. I really like that feel interspersed with deciduous material. And then in the fall, like I'm experiencing here right now, it's just the complexity of color. and It's a dynamic tapestry. It's so invigorating, you know, it's like Huichi would say, calming yet exuberant. It's, it's happening out there. So I love long, sinuous trunks that are... Functioning as part of a whole, multiple trees. So I suppose it's more overall compositions of things than individuals that that really really get me going, so, so to speak. But I don't know if I really answered that. But. No,
0: that makes sense. I know that there's a lot more to the garden than just the pine shapes. But yeah, I feel like I learned so much and. It was just so awesome to talk to you about this. Thank you so much, Tim, for everything.
1: Well, I really appreciate the opportunity, Shana, and it's been a it's been a pleasure.
0: To further your journey into the world of Japanese garden design. Be sure to visit our website at www.najga.org. That's N A J G A.org. There you'll find an abundance of resources from handbooks to blogs and articles to webinars and more. Don't miss out on our email newsletters either. You can subscribe to stay in the loop on our new content, programs, and events. Of course, more than anything, it's important to become a member of NAJCA to enjoy the benefits of education, connection, and community among Japanese garden enthusiasts and professionals in North America. Keep fostering the art, craft, and heart of Japanese garden design, and until next time, happy Japanese gardening.